Our sermon passage this morning is Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 to 11. We will begin at verse 1, begin reading at verse 1 to help establish the wider context, to remind ourselves of what uh, we heard last week. So again, sermon passage is Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 to 11. Our scripture reading, uh, which we will read first, comes from Romans chapter 4, specifically verses 1 to 12. So we'll read Romans 4, 1 to 12 first, and then we'll turn to Philippians 3, 4 to 11. Brothers and sisters, this is the very Word of God. Please give ear to it. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. And now turning, if you will, to Philippians chapter 3. Our sermon passage is verses 4 through 11, but we will begin at verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss for the, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This ends the reading of God's most holy word. Let us pray.
Our gracious God, we pray for your blessing upon your word as it has just been read to us. And we pray now for your blessing upon your word as it is preached. Our gracious God, teach us what it means that our righteousness is not counted to us because of our works, but that our righteousness is counted to us because of faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would teach us to consider everything else as rubbish. All of the things that we would desire to hold up before you, to point to, to justify ourselves. Help us to count them as loss. Teach us from your word now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, in last week's passage, we read Paul's command to rejoice in the Lord. And we also saw how he told the Philippians and us to put no confidence in the flesh. It is precisely because of what the Lord has done that we have no need of putting our confidence in the flesh. And that is what makes us able to rejoice in the Lord. If we put our confidence in the flesh, then we have no reason to rejoice. No reason at all, especially not to rejoice in the Lord. Now, after Paul has told the Philippians to put uh, no confidence in the flesh, he essentially tells them that if they think they've got reasons or grounds to put confidence in their own flesh, he's got even more. Now what Paul is not doing here is saying, this is what I'm doing. He's saying, if you want to put confidence in your flesh... I can put confidence in mine. We'll go toe-to-toe. And I'll show you why you have no reason to put confidence in your flesh because I've got no reason to put confidence in mine. That's what he's doing here. And so Paul in verse 4, he's not contradicting what he just said in verse 3. He's not saying that he can have confidence in his flesh, but no one else can. This isn't a do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do type of situation. Paul is going to use his own so-called reasons for confidence to blow up the whole notion of confidence in the flesh. And so he writes in verse 4, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then in the next few verses, he begins to list out all of the reasons he could have confidence in his own flesh. In verse 5, he says that he could have confidence in the flesh because he was circumcised on the eighth day. That was a requirement of Old Testament law. Perhaps not all uh, Jewish males were circumcised on the eighth day, especially by the time of Paul, but Paul was. He could have confidence in that. His parents followed the ceremonial law scrupulously. His parents are the ones, of course, who who put him up to go to uh, the rabbinical school in Jerusalem. He was Saul of Tarsus, and yet he went to Jerusalem. His, his parents farmed his education out to the rabbis uh, at the temple. What's more, he is of the people of Israel. He is born of the tribe of Benjamin. Not Judah, but still the tribe of Israel's first king, Saul, his namesake. And he continues on in verse 5, describing himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews meaning that he epitomizes what it means to be a Jew. He could have been the poster boy for Judaism in his day. And as far as keeping the law, he was a Pharisee, so no one but fellow Pharisees could possibly be in his league. He was running with the big dogs of the Hebrew religion. In verse 6, he writes, As to zeal a persecutor of the church. Here, of course, he is speaking of, we can imagine, the stoning of Stephen on which he looked approvingly, but his zealous persecution of the church wouldn't have been limited only to Stephen's stoning. 
When Jesus confronts Paul on the road to Damascus, Saul, we might say there, on the road to Damascus, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He's talking about the church as a whole, not just Stephen, but the entire church Saul has gone after. He was such a terror to the church, you'll remember, that the Christians had a very difficult time at first accepting him after his conversion. They were wary. They were cautious about him. He continues on in verse 6, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now in these verses, Paul has laid out his bona fides. He has shown his credentials. All the things that his Jewish culture uh, gave him, uh, that gave him standing among his people. He would have been respected, revered even by his fellow Jews. He was by any standard in an objective way successful in his former life. And what he is trying to tell the Philippians is that if if they have even uh, caught even a whiff of the Judaizers' contagion, if they're buying into what the Judaizers are selling, even to a tiny degree, then they need to realize that whatever the Judaizers can claim about themselves, Paul's credentials surpass theirs in every way. And that's why what he says next is so surprising. We'll get to that in just a moment. Some of you have perhaps read Thomas Wolfe's novel, The Bonfire of the Vanities, or maybe you've seen uh, the movie, I think it's got Tom Hanks in it and some others. Uh, it's about a Wall Street stock exchange broker and about those uh, people who worked in Wall Street and those exchanges. Uh, uh, Thomas Wolfe, he didn't coin the phrase, but he was the first to use this phrase of them. They, were, they called themselves the masters of the universe. They had a monstrous amount of power in terms of the financial markets. And in the 1980s, uh, uh, the period that Wolf sets uh, his book in, they were very much at the top of the financial world. And so this novel is about how one of these so-called masters of the universe received his comeuppance. There's a certain perverse delight that many of us take in seeing one of the big dogs of society to go down. Go down and, and that's what happens to the main character in this book. He is driving, trying to get to a party, some sort of social function. He ends up in one of the roughest parts of Harlem. And all kinds of mayhem and trouble ensue. And so there's a little bit of you read the book and you you kind of delight in the fact that this this man who was so prideful and so arrogant and had so much power and he crashes down hard. But the truth is, you don't have to be one of those so-called masters of the universe to, to think of yourself in a way that's inappropriate. We don't... We all have ways of thinking of ourselves as being someone who is at the top of one heap or another. We've all got things that we pride ourselves on. The problem with what Paul prided himself on back when he was known as Saul is that those things tied directly into his standing before God as far as as his religious system was concerned. The things that he points to, these were all of those things that when he was Saul, when when he was pursuing the church, when he was going after the church to persecute them, to tamp it down and eradicate the church from the face of the earth, he pointed to these things that he's just mentioned to the Philippians as reasons why God would accept him as righteous in God's sight. And this is what the Judaizers were wanting the Philippians and other, uh, other churches to do, to put confidence in the flesh as far as their justification before God was concerned. But now we get to the surprising part. 
In verse 7, Paul writes, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. All of these things that he's just mentioned, they are nothing. All of those things which he clung to, most certainly he was proud of about himself when he was the Hebrew of Hebrews, the, the Pharisee. He sees now that they're nothing. He says that they are no, of no benefit to himself whatsoever as far as his salvation is concerned. And brothers and sisters, what else really matters in this life? Though the Judaizers might count them as gain, though the Judaizers might have really been impressed and even somewhat jealous of his resume, Paul counts them, he reckons them as loss. Rather than as merit, something that would cause God to accept him as righteous, he regards them as demerit. Now we can only imagine what Paul's, or, or rather Saul's experience with Christ was like on the road to Damascus, Damascus. Prior to that divinely appointed and conducted encounter, he was confident that he was in the right before God. He knew that everything that he was doing was right. And it's possible that he even pointed to his resume that he listed out to the Philippians in uh, verses 4 to 6. That he possibly pointed to that those things when he met Jesus for the first time. Perhaps it was at that point that Paul was instructed by Christ that all of these points of pride, his tribe, his rank as a Pharisee, his close adherence to the law, that all of these things were fit for nothing but the dung heap. And that's basically what Paul says in verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. All of the things that we cling to that are important to us, that are special to us, that give us meaning... If we're to live like Paul, if we're to, to, to follow what he is saying here, we count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ. In verse 7 he said that he counted whatever he had as, uh, whatever gain he had as loss for the sake of Christ. And he says in verse 8 that he counts everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ as his Lord. And he says in verse 8 that he counts all things of which he has suffered the, the loss as rubbish. These characteristics, these markers, the attributes about himself of which he says according to the flesh he would put confidence in, he counts as worthless. And that is because they are worthless with regard to his relationship with Jesus Christ. They don't mean a thing to Christ. And so they don't mean a thing to Paul. <clears throat> Now, perhaps the modern-day equivalent of what Paul is speaking about, it might be great wealth. It might be expensive sports cars. It might be gigantic mansions. Those are the kinds of things that make a person feel prestigious and important, unassailable in this world. And even if we don't have those things, we might secretly want the money and all the cars and all of the things that go with it. We might be envious of those who have it because we aspire to that kind of position. And what does Paul say about all of that? It is loss. It is rubbish. It is worth nothing because it gains him nothing with Jesus Christ. It gets him nowhere. 
as far as Christ is concerned. And we said earlier that these things are good, these things are good for nothing but the dung heap as far as Paul is concerned. And the word that Paul uses that is translated as rubbish in the ESV and most early trans, earlier translations, it's related to this idea of the dung heap. But the word rubbish doesn't quite get at what Paul is saying. We think of rubbish, we think of trash, we throw it out, it goes to the dump. The King James Version is the closest in its translation to what Paul was actually saying. Verse 8 of the King James reads this, I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung. Now this word that Paul used, it would not necessarily have been used in polite company. In fact, the main New Testament Greek-English dictionary has this entry, and I'm quoting here. So don't get mad at me. <laughs> to convey the crudity of the Greek, here's the way it might be rendered. It's all crap. That's what Paul was saying. This word, it refers to excrement. And what he is saying is that all his good works, all of his accomplishments, his being born into the tribe of Benjamin and having been circumcised on the eighth day, all of that is like filthy rags that have been covered in human waste. But kids, lest you think that Paul's use of this word gives you license to use whatever language and whatever situation you desire... Maybe not kids, maybe all of us here. Consider what Paul is speaking about. He doesn't use this word frivolously. He doesn't throw it around. He's writing a letter. And it's likely that he gave some thought to the use, his use of this word in that letter. He understood that this word was somewhat offensive. In fact, the... the, the the, the church fathers that, that came after Paul, the generation, they, you never find this word in their writings. They don't, they don't use this as an excuse to use that word. He's using it to describe all the things that had given him pride, that had increased his status among his people. And he's saying that all these things are utterly worthless and disgusting to him because of the surpassing knowledge of knowing Jesus Christ. It's all excrement. It's only worthy of being cast out, of being flushed down the drain. Why? Because he knows Jesus Christ. And compared to knowing him, everything else is worthless. And so Paul, along with throwing his own claims to fame and importance on the dung heap, he's also throwing those same claims of the Judaizers, the dogs, as he describes them in verse 2. He's throwing theirs onto the pile as well. And we can, we can understand that Paul is using these words advisedly. What do dogs do? When all else fails, they feed off of the dung heap. And that's what he's saying that the Judaizers are trying to do to the Philippian church. To cause them to give up the bread of life. And to go not to, not to the trash heap. To go to the outhouse. And to go down into the pit. And to have a feast there. That's what Paul is telling these Philippians. If they return to these pride points of the flesh, 
if they put their confidence in the things that they have done, the, the good works that they have done, if they use those things to justify themselves, to present themselves as righteous before the most holy God, Paul is saying they have covered themselves in excrement. That's all it is. And so Paul accounts these things, these things that for him in an earlier life were points of pride, he counts them as rubbish or as unspeakable filth in order that he might gain Christ. And then continuing on in verse 9, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Compared to being found in Christ, everything is dung. Everything is rubbish, especially our works that we once thought gave us right standing with God. God has reckoned us as righteous, not because of these so-called good works. He's reckoned us as righteous because he's reckoned the righteousness of Christ as our own. Therefore, we reckon all of our so-called good works as rubbish. That's what Paul is saying here. And so if you have to choose between your good works and the good works of Jesus Christ, which are you going to choose, brothers and sisters? Never your own. Always Christ's. All of his obedience to the law, every day of his life, he not once violated God's law, even when he was a child. Not once. Sociologists, psychologists, they have, they, have, they have verified that children as young as, as three to six months of age can lie to their parents by the way that they cry. They can, they can use a, a tone of voice in their crying that makes it sound like that they are in mortal danger when really all they want is out of their cribs. Christ Jesus never did a thing that was sinful, not even as a babe. Because he is perfectly sinless in every way. And, and that record, his keeping the law that carried for, forward from the day that he was born to the day he died, it's all counted as yours. If you believe in him, then you are counted as righteous in God's sight, even though you sin every day of your life. This is what Scripture elsewhere refers to as justification, such as Romans 4, which we read earlier. And this being counted as righteous, it's not just some fictional reckoning on a piece of paper somewhere. Paul says in verse 9 that it is a righteousness that you come to possess through faith in Christ. He says, not having a righteousness, righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. We might say, having a righteousness of my own which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Christ's perfect uh, record of law-keeping, it becomes your own record of law-keeping. But it's not that His righteousness is infused into you so that you are made righteous all at once. It's righteousness that is imputed or credited to you so that you are counted as righteous all at once. You will also become more righteous, meaning that your actual sins will be put to death gradually, over time, though not fully in this life. That's sanctification, not justification. And sanctification is what Paul gets to next. 
Having a righteousness that comes through faith means that we know him. And if we know him, then we know the power of his resurrection. That's what Paul says in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Brothers and sisters, if you truly know Jesus Christ, that you have died to your sin and you know the power of Christ's resurrection, the same power that brought Christ back to life from the dead has brought you to spiritual life from the dead. Now we've already said it. We will always sin in this life. Every day of your life, you will commit some sin or other. None of us will be perfect until the day we're with Jesus. But some of you are struggling with some sin or other that just won't seem to get its claws out of you. You can't seem to stop no matter how hard you try. You hate the sin and yet you cannot let it go. Now, this is what theologians call a besetting sin. It's one of those sins that probably, probably because of something in your past, it holds a special temptation for you. And you find yourself easily falling back into it, no matter how hard you try not to. Listen to me. You are dead to sin. It no longer has dominion or power over you. You have been set free from its clutches. It only feels like it's got its claws in you. It no longer has the power over you in the way that it once did before you knew Christ. Listen to what God says in His Word in Romans chapter 6, verses 5 to 11. This is a long passage. Stick with me here. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. For those of you struggling with one of those so-called besetting sins, and I would, I would wager to guess that most of you here do in one way or another. It might be some of the, the, the typical marquee sins that, that we're all aware of, lust or something else. It may be something less, uh, maybe a little more acceptable in society. It could be the besetting sin of simply not trusting God, not really believing that He's as good as His Word says He is. It could be something like that. If you're struggling with one of these besetting sins, here's the good news. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you have died with Him and you have been raised with Him. You are dead to sin. It is not victorious over you. You have been made victorious over it. You can change, brothers and sisters, not by your own power, not by your own strength. You can't do it by yourself but by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the attendant use of the means of grace, the word, the sacraments, and prayer, 
you can change. It may take years of hard-fought battle. But God's Spirit will change you. And part of that process, not all of it, but part of it is simply believing that it can happen. Believing that God can change you. Believing that you don't have to do this thing anymore, whatever it may be. God in His gospel, God in in His grace, if you believe in Jesus Christ, He has made a definitive break with sin in you. It no longer controls you the way that it once did. That fight against sin, whether it is besetting or not, it is a struggle. And it is at least in part what Paul means by sharing in Christ's sufferings. Now, he means more than that. Sharing in his sufferings, it means that if they hated Jesus, they're going to hate you. But for those of you who became a Christian later in life, let me ask you this question. Did you really care that much about your sin before you became a Christian? If you, if you became a Christian later in life, you, you probably even enjoyed your sin a little bit. But now that you're a Christian, now that you believe, now that there's been this break, you don't, you don't like it, you don't love it. You may crave it, but you still find it offensive. That's the work of the Spirit in your life. Being a Christian means that you struggle. It means that you fight against your sins. Unbelievers don't have that struggle. Faith in Jesus Christ, it means that you know both the power of His resurrection, but you also know, the, you know His sufferings. But it's all for, Paul, for, it's all for what Paul says in verse 11, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That is the goal. That is the finish line at the end of the long race. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you have already been raised from the dead spiritually. You've been resurrected. Your soul has been brought to life. It was dead as a stone. But now it's living. It's beating. It's alive. And if you have been raised spiritually, then at the end of the age, when Christ returns to judge the living and the dead, you will be raised physically as well. And that physical body will be reunited with that soul And you will stand before God without blemish or spot. You will stand before Him as perfectly righteous and sinless. And then it will only be the imputed righteousness of Christ. It will be actual righteousness. You will not be able to sin ever again. What you know spiritually, what you know because the Bible has told you so, you will experience in reality And if you were raised from the dead spiritually through faith in Jesus Christ, then when you are raised physically and your body and soul are reunited, then you will hear these words. You will hear these words, brothers and sisters, if you trust in Jesus Christ. Well done, good and faithful servant. Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And like... The people in that parable, 
that Jesus tells in Matthew 25, they'll say, when did I do this? When did I do this to you, dear Lord? You won't even know. You won't even know the things that you've done because the Holy Spirit has done them through you. He's been at work in you. He's been doing these things. He's been changing you. He's been transforming you. He's been calling you and causing you to walk in righteousness. At that point, when Christ Jesus returns, what has been declared about you, when you were in this life, it will become a total and complete reality. Your, your body and your life will reflect what you have been declared to be. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you will hear those words. Those who do not believe in Jesus Christ, the Bible says they will suffer punishment in hell forever. They will not hear, well done, good and faithful servant. They will hear, depart from me. I never knew you. You are not one of mine. The assumption here is that everyone in this room is a believer. But that's not always a safe assumption, is it? If you don't know Jesus Christ, if you are not trusting in Him as your Savior, then I implore you today to believe in Jesus Christ. Otherwise, what lies ahead for you will be that you will be sent into the pains of hell forever. If you believe, if you believe, the, the moment that you believe, that faith will be counted as righteousness. You will be accepted in God's sight. You will be welcomed into His family. You will be brought into His loving embrace. And you will enjoy communion with the Lord, the triune God, forever. And on top of that, brothers and sisters, in this life, you can break with sin. And that, all of that, is the good news. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you that if we have died with Christ, then we have been raised with Him. We thank you, dear Lord, that if we have faith in Jesus Christ, then we are counted as righteous. That you look upon us and you don't see our sin. We thank you that our sins were imputed to Jesus on the cross. His righteousness has been imputed to us. We pray, O Lord, that your spirit would go about his work of renovating us now. His work of sanctification. His work of repairing this old broken down house that is our body. We pray, dear Lord, that we might cooperate with your spirit. We pray that we wouldn't resist. We pray that we would not cling to the temptations of this life. That we would not indulge in our sinful natures. We pray that you would remind us, dear Lord, that the sin in us has been put to death. Lord, we ask for your blessing upon us. 
pray, dear Lord, that we would live the rest of our days worshiping you, glorifying you, honoring you, honoring you with our minds, with our mouths, with our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name.